All right, dun dun dun. Intro. I'm pretty sure is Mur. Me. It is you, but I like that framing of it. It's me. That's <laughs> me. It's gonna be me. There it is. <laughs> oh no, you sang. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at Thoughtbot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vicari, and I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, how's your week going? Uh, It's going well. We're actually recording on Monday, so I feel weird. Normally, I have like a whole week, and I'm like, oh, I'm reflecting back on that. But as you asked that, I'm like, I don't know. I feel like nothing's happened yet. What's? Oh, right. It's Monday. Brain did some weird stuff there. But uh, yeah, Monday's off to a good start. A little bit sleepy, a little bit cold. But, uh, you know, otherwise, here we are. It's the 21st of September, actually. And I was just uh, recounting that this is an important day due to the, the works of Earth, Wind and Fire. So here we are. I don't know. Do other people appreciate that song or this day? Is this is this a known thing? And I'm just now aware of it. I just saw it in passing today because there's someone who makes a video every year, apparently. And so I saw this is his fifth year of making that video. Uh, and that reminded me, but I hope everyone is aware of the song. It's such a great song. Yeah, I love it. And now I'm very excited that today is Earth, Wind and Fire Day, or at least for that song. We'll have to, we'll have to add that. Maybe Tom can add that as the Take Us Out music so other folks can listen to it. Whatever our legal sample size is, the like 15 seconds or something that we can do without having to <laughs> run into royalties or copyright issues. But yeah, in um, in other news, I'm working on something today, and uh, I wanna I wanna start a segment which I'm going to call "Good Idea, Terrible Idea," and I'm now going to describe to you the thing that I'm doing, and then I want your feedback as to whether or not this is a good idea or a terrible idea. Okay, I'm into it. Seems like it should be fun. So I've talked in a bunch of recent episodes about performance work that I've been doing on the app that I'm working on. Uh, We continually want to improve how we're interacting with the database, clean up things, add indexes, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually, at some point, you hit that wall and you should just pay for bigger hardware. In fact, some would argue I should have done that earlier. I was actually misreading the pricing guide and I thought we had to do like a much bigger jump. Turns out there is a middle tier that we can jump to. So I'm excited about that, but I also have just discovered some stuff in Postgres version 12 that I would like to use, but we're on version 10. So both upgrading your actual database and upgrading your version are things that require downtime, but we can do them together in one fell swoop and have very little down. It's only like a minute, basically, because you end up setting up a follower. That follower is now either on the higher plan or on the upgraded version. In our case, it'll be both. And then you do a switch over to the follower. So you change from pointing at the primary to pointing at the follower. And then that's the new primary. But that switch over is just there's some gap there. So what you want to do is put on maintenance mode, prevent any new data from being written, because you're going to lose it if you don't do that. And then you switch over. So all of that is well and good. And the default recommendation is to turn on maintenance mode in Heroku. But that actually would give, I think, a very poor user experience in our case, particularly because we have a mobile app and the default for maintenance mode is to respond with 503 status code, which that's the correct status code. But the mobile app is configured to try and parse JSON in all cases because we've configured JSON error messages basically everywhere else we're communicating over an API. But now we're sending some HTML. So the message that users would see in that case is failed to parse JSON at token, quote, quote, something doc type HTML. It's like, yeah, that's rough. So I am now trying to figure out a different way to go about that. And in particular, what I'm thinking is, would it be possible to get away with a read-only connection? So not necessarily a read-only connection to the database, but a read-only mode for the application. And I've done some research. There is a thing in Rails where you can say this is a read-only model. Uh, It turns out that is different than what I want, though, because it doesn't prevent deletes or destroys. So then I was like, okay, I can add that. That'll prevent updates and creates. And then I can add before destroy callback. And that I can use to conditionally block destroying. But that only hits destroy. It doesn't cover delete. And then there's Mm -hmm. also upsert is actually a sneaky way. Also, if at any point we're doing like direct SQL, that's a problem. So... We may go that route. We may, and this is what I'm poking at right now, and this is the the crux of the good idea, terrible idea. There is the active record persistence class methods module, which defines create, create bang, delete, destroy, insert, insert all, update, etc. All of those core methods. 
And I'm just thinking of overriding them all and having them raise in the event that I am in that mode. Because I don't want the app to work, essentially. I want reads to work so that we can still return data. Because this app, the nature of how the mobile apps work is you sync a bunch of data down and then you're interacting with that data locally. And there are some things that we want to be able to save up, but there's retry mechanisms built into the client apps. So I think it would actually work really well offline. But if I'm not able to get this read-only mode, then for that, let's say it's five-minute window, every user of the app is going to have a poor experience because in the background, the app does a lot of refreshing. And now we're going to surface that error. I think we're going to surface that error to them. So yeah, I'm going to pause there. Mostly that little kernel of an idea, but then more generally, what do you think about where I'm going with this? Well, uh, that, that's a lot. Uh, I may have to unpack some of those different <laughs> steps with you before I give my good idea, terrible idea response. When you're talking about upgrading uh, to Postgres, so you'll have some downtime. How long of that downtime do you think that will take? I think it's only like a minute. It's basically there's this switch from the primary to the follower. And so during that, any data that was being written to the primary will be lost because you're now saying the follower is the new, you're, I think it's promoting is the terminology. So during that period, you have now lost any data that was written to the primary. And so it's essentially just that window of time where you need to like shuffle around some config variables as opposed to any longer process or any backup or things. Because you're using a follower, it should be caught right up and... It should be very minimal, but it's still something. More generally, though, I would love to have the option of using a read-only connection to the to the app. There are different migrations that I might want to do, more fundamental re-architecting of like how we're modeling data in the database. And right now, I just can't do them because they would block too much. But if there's a read-only mode, then maybe maybe that actually allows me to do more in the future. So it's something that I'm interested in more generally, but also for this particular case. The read-only idea is interesting, but I have concerns for when what it looks like from the user's perspective, where if they do try to create something and then what happens for them, and then if they spend a while, like if we use uh, Trello for an example, and they spend a while like typing up a description for something and then try to create it, but then it fails because we're in only read-only mode, I feel like that's a worse user experience than if they just get back in error. So that one gives me stronger concerns. Also, when you were talking about overriding active record methods, people can't see me, but I laughed. <laughs> so I figured I'd share that just like that. And uh, my immediate reaction was, oh, God. <laughs> so, Fair. So that's that my, was my reaction, yeah, when I started to think about it. That's my hot take for that one. But I like the exploratory, like, what if we took like some of those wild options and then how would they pan out? I just looked up the 503 status because I had to remind myself exactly what status that is. And it's the service unavailable. And my other question is, have you considered responding to just that particular status code? And then you could show like a maintenance underway message to the user, given that's only going to be for a minute or two. And just honestly, like hard code a response to any time the app receives like a 503 from the server. Would that be a reasonable approach? Generally, yes. Specifically in this case, I think I'm trying to avoid that. And the reason is we have mobile clients. And so pushing out that change to have that maintenance mode in the clients, it would require an update to two different applications. And there's always the long tail of people who haven't upgraded their app yet. So this is actually something that has been a continuing challenge and something that I'm trying to think around is how do we build that robustness into a system like this where the clients own so much of the logic and sometimes I'm just stuck. I can't change things that I want to change because it's actually, at the end of the day, the client's in charge. And so that more general thing of like having a read-only mode in the client would be the ideal solution. And that's something that I would want to get to. I, I think that's like a good direction for us to move, but I can't rely on that. And so if I really need to make sure nobody's writing to the database, I have to be in charge of that as the like API, as the central hub and gateway of all information exchange because there's that long tail of clients that haven't updated yet. And then the trade-off would be that they don't see the error up front. Hopefully, a number of users will have access to the app. It's read-only, and they'll continue on and never even notice something happened. And then if someone is trying to write to the database during that minute or two of downtime, then they're the only uh, users that will then see an error. So you're limiting the number of users that will then have a poor experience. Yep, exactly. And coming back to what you said, I think it was a really good lens for like the user experience of a read-only mode where, well, what if I've just you know drafted up this beautiful missive that I'm now going to try and upload to Trello? 
if the app were more of that style where users are creating a lot of content and modifying and updating and, and inserting things, then that would definitely be more of a concern. But because this is more of a content platform where people are consuming the information, so it's really the vast majority of interactions are reads, I'm more inclined to be okay with it. Like that concern where you're saying like someone's drafted something up, people aren't doing that in this app. So they should not experience that particular failure mode where they've done some work and then that work is lost. The thing that will happen is after they watch a particular video, then the fact that they've done that will attempt to upload to the server will fail, but there's retry mechanisms built in. So it will just try again later and everything will sort itself out. So they won't lose any data. They will briefly, I'm not even sure if they'll see it or if it will silently retry in the background. So it may actually be like the read-only mode may be perfect from a user perspective, with the exception of if they try and change their username in the profile page, that would definitely show them an error. But that's, again, there's like a couple of text inputs there. Yeah, that certainly helps understand it's not likely that many users are going to encounter this error. So that's really nice. When you were talking about overriding the active record methods, tell me more, friend, how, how would that <laughs> approach go down? Yeah, I guess I, I should have clarified more about that because what are you doing in there? So the fundamental mechanism that I started with was using the active record base. So that class has a read-only question mark method. And it implements it internally for some things related to joins. There are times where they want to treat a record as read-only that they've loaded into memory. But you can override that actually and use it for your own purpose and say like, we have a reference to this database field, but you should never write to it. You can read it, but you shouldn't write to it. So this is a read-only model. And what I ended up doing for my first pass was to implement that on application record. And so all of my classes have it. And now it's conditionally enabled if I turn on this environment variable. If that happens and we attempt to write anything, we will raise an, I think it's an active record read-only model, I think is the name of the error, something like that. And then I put a global-ish rescue from in the various controllers, the root controllers that we have in the app. So if for some reason we do get to that code path, if someone tries to update their profile, then it will raise that error, we'll get the rescue from, and then we explicitly say service unavailable info, and then there's a string that will be shown to the user. So there's a nice happy error path there. And my overriding of all of the active record persistence class methods would be just to raise that error so that we're getting into that same very contained failure mode with a nice error message, not just doing whatever I want, <laughs> not just having a party in there. I have to say, it's always fun how you bring ideas up like this. And I immediately like, I don't know, but then you're really starting to persuade me <laughs> into how it, it makes sense. And the fact that we're limiting the errors for users, if they do encounter this, it is likely that their persistence will still be applied later as that request is processed. They do see a nice error as to then something went wrong. So that's uh, handled as well. I think my sort of like the two avenues to help me choose which way I'd go is one, does this feel like something that's going to be repeated in the future that it's worth the initial investment of should we go ahead and work this out so that we can tell the client application as to like when we are going into maintenance mode, and then we can show the user that this app is in maintenance mode. And it's worth that upfront investment now to pursue that. Or if it feels like, well, no, we really just want to do it this one time. We're really not sure when we're going to have downtime again. And then pursuing the overriding, putting it only in read-only mode. And then if you choose that avenue, I think it would be really nice to have some tracking, which you may already have in place for those errors, to then go back and check the assumption that not many users are going to see this error. And then confirm, be like, yep, only like five users saw this error during the couple minutes that we had downtime. Or, you know, 100 users saw the error and we were totally wrong as to how this would impact users. Yeah, I think the the tracking definitely feels true in the the broad question of is this a one-time thing or is this something we'll probably be redoing more than once. My hope is that we'll be able to reuse this logic. It feels like the sort of thing that is useful and it's more subtle than if this were just a web app. If it's a web app, you put it into maintenance mode and the platform via which they're getting the information inherently can tell them this. We can own what that maintenance mode page looks like and you know, it's a web app. We can deploy as many times as we want and update things. But again, the limitation that I'm up against is that even if we have a meeting today, we decide some things, we push out a new version of the mobile app, six months from now, I'm still going to have old clients out there that are thinking like, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to try and write to the database. And so even if we do have fixes in the mobile app to give a better experience, which I think is a worthwhile thing to think about regardless, but that still wouldn't be enough. So I need to implement it at the server level or at the API level. We also have an admin interface that I would want to control that. And so I really just want to 
because my first attempt was a very leaky version of it where I kept being like, oh, I got this. This is great. There's just a read-only thing. That's cool. I'll turn that on. And then I was like, oh, no, I have an upsert in the app. Uh, oh, we're writing some raw SQL over there. That's bad. Um, oh, what about this? And so I've now just been collecting all of the different places that my initial attempt would not actually have stopped things. So now I've tried to drop down to a much lower level. And I'm actually realizing as I'm looking at the list of methods here, it doesn't include execute. So I now need to go find where that is. Uh, application record, something like that. And so just define execute and be like, nope, you don't get to anymore. Sorry, you lost your privileges just for this temporary maintenance window. But again, it, this would be a terrible session of good idea, terrible idea if it were obvious to you, which is the, <laughs> the clear answer there. <laughs> Uh, it is tricky. It's not clear to me. The only other kind of wild idea I can think of is if there's a way to show a message to users to say, hey, we're going to have some scheduled downtime between like these <laughs> feels a little silly, but to tell users that we're going to be down for like these five minutes and then just let them see the hard error and have that poor user experience. But the poor user experience was communicated up front. I don't know if that's a, an option where you could show them that sort of one off message to let them know that this is coming. I imagine we have some in-app messaging that we could use for that. Although again, because of the nature of this app, I think there's a way that like, especially if we only have like five minute downtime windows where we could get by without even telling most users. And if a small number of users hit a read-only error, a specific one that tells them what's going on says, please try again later. That to me is the best possible experience we can get to. Actually having like a banner in the app that says we're currently in read-only mode. And then if they try and do something, then they also get the error message. That's maybe the best, but... Because so much of the experience happens just local to the client and the data sink down, I almost wonder, can, can we just you know sneak under the radar and protect the data, do that, but also sneak under the radar and give users just a nice, happy experience? They don't even need to know that we're doing maintenance. Who does maintenance? I'm going to go bold with everything that you've told me so far, and I'm going to say good idea because wow. I also want to hear how it goes. <laughs> Because <laughs> if you told me terrible idea, I might not do it, and then you might not get an update. And then I won't know how it turned out. But yeah, it seems like you certainly thought about this and all the, the ways that it could go well and the ways that it could fail. And I, I see the struggle between you can't really control on the client side, the code and the message that's going to be shown. So you really need to control on the server side what's going to happen. And the fact that there is that idea that any errors that do occur and that their data would still be processed. And it's just for like a minute or two. And you're, it's, it's convincing me that this is a good idea. Cool. Well, I will uh, probably move forward with this and let you know how it goes. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. So give Scout a try for free today and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. And Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. As an example project that you might be interested in, Inertia.js is a great one that I've talked about a few times on the episode. And uh, they could be a great place to send that money to. So give it a try. And thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. That's been the start of my week so far. How, uh, how's your week going? It's starting off really well. So I just wrapped up uh, my client project. I was on that project for just about a year. So it feels very strange to move away from a team that I've spent a whole year getting to know and getting to understand their problems and users. And it was a wonderful experience. So I'm a bit sad to say farewell, but hopefully I'll, I'll stay in touch with some of them to know how it goes. Because we had a couple of important deadlines that were still coming up that I'd love to hear feedback on. They seem very comfortable. They're in a great spot for those deadlines, but it would just bring me closure to know how it goes for them. So yeah, I just wrapped up that project and it was a really nice transition as well because some of the projects when we're working on them, it feels like a race to the finish where I'm trying to pack in as much work as possible in that last week. And while I'm still certainly trying to get as much done as possible, it didn't feel quite as, as stressful. It felt like a calm, productive last week. So that was really nice as well, where I got to address some of the things that were on my wish list of things that I had delayed till later, where it's like, if I have time, I'll do these, but it's not really like prioritized Brent work. 
I did something that I enjoyed that I think went well with the team as well, where I did make a Trello ticket where I shared that Stephanie wish list of things that I wanted to work on. But then I let others vote on them as to whether they thought it was worth my time or something that they would be excited to see as well. I'm striving to always get better at communicating my thoughts and my desires and things that I think are valuable. So others have an opportunity to echo that sentiment or to push back and say, well, we don't see the value in that as strongly we'd prefer for you to work on this instead and have those helpful conversations. So today is new project day, which is always an exciting day. So I've met my new team. I'm going to be working heavily with the Shopify API. Well, maybe not heavily, but I'm going to be working with applications that are integrated with the Shopify API. And I'm learning about Shopify in general. I just haven't used that platform before. And the fact that they have their own app marketplace. And then if you own a shop that you can install a bunch of these apps and then working with one of those teams that manages the apps that you can install. And then what happens when you run something that improves page performance or helps you with a checkout service. So I'm really looking forward to working with the team. They seem really great, really smart, really kind. Uh, It is a small team. I think there's just about three of us that's on the team, including myself and CTO Joe. He will also be on the project at some point, but I believe he's just doing for part of the time. This product also works with Amazon SQS, the simple queue service, which is something that I'm vaguely familiar with because the team I was just working with was also taking advantage of SQS, but I haven't gotten to work with it closely. So I'm excited for that. It seems like a really nice queuing service as a way to just distribute messages across other applications that are then going to pull from that queue and then get the work done. So yeah, lots of newness. I'm very excited to to dive in and then I'll have some more fun bits to report. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear more about the SQS. I haven't worked much with messaging systems a little bit. And in general, when I've worked with them, I frankly felt a lot of pain because it was in microservice architectures where the messaging system was a way to just distribute state throughout the app, but then stuff got weird. But I know that there are ways to use queuing systems and distributed message passing and all of that very effectively. And I personally would love to work with that more. So very interested to hear about that. Also, my understanding is Shopify is a GraphQL API. So uh. (laughs) I did not know that. And I am in a world where it's a number of applications that are distributed. And there is chatter about relocating those apps or merging them back into one to move away from that distributed microservice architecture. So I'm excited for that. I'm not sure if that's where we're truly headed. I'm still understanding from the team the pain points that they're feeling and if that's going to end up being the solution that we go with. But that's something that I know you've done before that I've been always intrigued to do, either the splitting a service out or condensing services back into one. So if we do choose that path, I will certainly have updates on how we approached it and then what results it yielded. Excellent. I don't know if I've ever actually split a service out, to be completely honest. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I think people just, um, I don't know. It doesn't come up in my day to day. I have merged a few of them back together. And again, I feel like I always feel the need to like clarify extra in the bike shed because I'm open to a lot of things. I've just personally seen microservices and splitting things out go poorly. And I have had weirdly a handful of experiences folding them back together, which I think is such a difficult choice to make. It was the right choice in the few cases where I was involved in it, but it's not something that I would recommend. Similar to the conversation we had a few weeks back about rewriting an app, like almost never am I actually going to recommend that. Uh, I wish we had done it different from the beginning, but here we are now and we've got software and it kind of works and can we make it work a little better is almost always the right answer. So it's weird to me that I actually now have this history of rewriting a bunch of apps, uh, merging services back together. I seem like the person who just likes to throw away good code. I don't think that's (laughs) who I am. And yet the data says something different. I can vouch for you. You don't throw away good code. You try You try to keep it as long as possible. Try and prop it up, try and support it, and try and give it the love and care that it needs so that it can live a happy life. But sometimes that code has served its purpose. I am curious for when you merge applications together, if that was a recent enough adventure. Do you remember how it went? Like what was your process for approaching and merging the code together? I do. Uh, I feel like we talked about some of it in recent episodes, so we can potentially look those up and link them in the show notes for anyone else that's interested in that. 
more generally, it's definitely a case-by-case sort of thing as much as possible. It was a piece-by-piece sort of idea. So can we pull a part of this? Can we pull a portion of it? It also varies in how is it structured. Like If you have message passing as the mechanism, that's going to take a different approach than in the most recent case that I did it, there was shared database connections. So it was really a question of just merging the model definitions back together because they had sort of drifted in these two applications. But under the hood, they were pointing at the same database. So fundamentally, they had the same data model. They just had different ideas as to which callbacks to call. Uh, So I deleted a lot of the callbacks as a (laughs) spoiler on that story. I think similar to many other things, like if I was thinking about introducing testing to an application, I would just start from the most outside layer I can and then start to draw boundaries. And then what pieces can we hide? What is visible and coupled to and what is not? And then make sure the thing that we're coupled to doesn't break or change. But then everything else is now like find your pivot point and then start to pivot. All of that sounds good and reassuring because that's also the direction that I'm headed. My first idea was to start with the different apps and figure out how different they are in terms of dependencies. So starting with a gem file, like are they on the same version of Rails? Are they on the same version of Ruby? Looking for if there's dependencies that we can upgrade together to bring them closer and sync with each other. And then start looking for test coverage that covers like the higher level test for a particular application and porting that over. And then essentially copying code over from the other app and bringing in to help those tests pass. I'm intrigued to see what oddities we may run into as we're trying to integrate like the two applications, given users can't access this directly. Like these apps are there to then process jobs when a webhook comes from Shopify to notify the application that something should be done. So there's less concerns around like authentication for users. And I feel like it could get trickier if like users were actually accessing these applications independently. But since they seem to be more for like processing power, I think that will help it be a bit smoother and less concerns. Like, I don't know, maybe like cookies would get weird if you were trying to really bring two apps together. I've definitely experienced that. (laughs) So I think that's my plan is to start there. Well, honestly, let me back up. Uh, My plan is to first really understand the problem and the benefits of merging these apps together. And then we'll decide if if that makes the most sense. But I, I do know that that is one solution that we're considering. I think that is a very smart starting point. Do we have to do this at all? Because it's going to be rough. But then the adventure begins, if it begins, which quite possibly it won't. Along the lines of talking about microservice architecture, I have a question that I would love to run by you. How to manage when you have a number of applications and it comes to testing? Specifically, I was talking with a team that I just rolled off of, but they were asking really great questions around When we have PRs that we would love to merge, we have test coverage for those PRs, and then we take it to staging and we click around and verify. Staging interacts with about three to four other important services that are really key to the user experience. So the test coverage that we have is for like the main application, and then each service has its own suite of tests as well. But in terms of the ability to have the confidence of we pushed up a PR, we've run it on CI, or we've run it in some way that we test and that we have confidence that yes, this PR not only works for this application, but also doesn't break the contracts or the expectations with the other services around it as well, and then be able to merge it. For the most part, it's okay that we don't do that because we're always going to test stuff on staging before taking it into the main branch. But in other cases, to circle back to my old friend, Dependabot PRs, those are a really great example of where we'd love to just trust the test suite that everything is green and then merge it and proceed without having to go and first click around on staging, make sure everything seems fine and then merge them. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts when it comes to like, if you have a suite of services and you want to have the test coverage that gives you confidence that you could deploy, that you didn't break the interactions with any of your services, what are your thoughts on that subject? Mm, uh, That is definitely a tricky problem. And to get the snarkiness out of the way at the start, because that seems important, this is a very real reason why I consider service-oriented architecture to have such a high cost. This is one example of that cost. Testing is just so much harder, but it's the same thing. Orchestration and deployment and keeping things on similar versions. There's just all of these different facets that suddenly are so much harder than they would have been if it were just one monolithic sort of thing. So that's sort of idea zero in my mind is what if we didn't? Maybe if we merge them together, probably not per the earlier conversation that that's almost always going to be too much effort, except for the handful of times I've done it. But (laughs) 
I think there's a couple different ways. One version that I've seen is actually grabbing the different services and either cloning them locally into CI and then running those multiple processes alongside each other and going with that. That's a solution. That one I've seen to be just really brittle. So I probably would not recommend that. Um, I have worked with an organization that had a microservice architecture and they had a very, very talented DevOps team that had worked to build up a set of, I want to say they're Docker orchestration scripts or something like that, but they could spin up a production-like environment with some five or six services that needed to work together, convince them all that they all exist, and then have them work at a given URL. And that was now available. They were just at the point of rolling that out for PRs while I was working with them. It was a team of at least five people, if not more, in the DevOps organization, and they were very, very good at what they did. And this was still you know, months of effort for them. So that seems like a thing that could be really great if each PR suddenly has a magical, complete environment that you can test against on demand with data, seeded, et cetera, et cetera. But again, this organization that was, I think, the best DevOps group that I've worked with, still, that was an aspirational goal for them. So I don't know that that's even a realistic thing to shoot for. More likely, what I would start to look at is, can we look at some of the interfaces, some of the the APIs or the contracts with other services and fake them out? So either use, like we've used Capybara Disco Ball. Um, I think I'm saying that right, but spin up fake services alongside Capybara in a Rails app. And that's actually worked really well. I've done that in the past with GitHub and other external service providers, but I think you could do that even with your own internal service providers. I've also been interested in Mirage, Mirage Mirage.js. So if you have a client-side app that is communicating with a back-end, maybe you can hide all of the service nonsense because maybe the back-end owns that service communication. So you can just ignore all of it and have a really robust fake in Mirage and run with that. And then you're testing the UI and a user clicks on a button and a thing happens, but you're always going to have trade-offs. There's always going to be complexity that you need to manage. So actually the third option that I've not explored much, but I'm more interested as these more complicated architectures come about is what if we were to flip it on its head and instead of trying to have CI and testing upfront that prevented breakages from making it to production, what if we had really solid monitoring, alerting thresholds, those sort of things so that we could say like, we know that our typical error rate is one a minute. If we see that spike up to three or five a minute, then we pipe that into Slack or we automatically roll back. Similarly, like we know that the rate of new users signing up looks about like this. If it drops by 75% right after a deploy, that tells us maybe something went wrong. And so having those sort of canary alerting sort of situations might be an alternative approach that allows you to avoid all of the complexity of trying to replicate a production-like environment and just say, I don't know, we'll, we'll test it live. But that you know is scary for other reasons. So... I've not seen a silver bullet solution on this. I will certainly say that. Yeah, I'm I'm with you where I haven't found like that correct approach for something that feels like a, a complex issue. I have also been in the world where I've worked with a team where they had a really skilled DevOps and team that was working on creating a production-like environment. And we were also using that for not just for CI purposes, but also for our staging environment. So if someone had a PR they wanted to test, they could spin up their own production-like environment, push their code to it. And then that's what the QA team would use when walking through it. And it worked like 90% of the time. And when it worked, it it was really great. It was really wonderful. But the parts of the 10% where it didn't work was really typically around like the data creation or anytime we had schema changes, some of that got complicated and then making sure there was enough data that then you could adequately test the user flows. So then the QA team wasn't spending a lot of time recreating the data that they needed. The other approach that I've also worked with is running against staging. So if you have some scripted tests that then can hit the staging endpoint and then confirm like whatever your top key five features are, have some sort of automating script that can then run against staging to make sure everything works. I think that is one really interesting approach. I think that also does run into the concerns of your creating data. So let's say if you're running these tests, like I think at what is a low estimate, like 20 times a day, then you're creating records 20 times a day. You could delete them, but in our case, it's always going to be a soft deletion. So you're still building up data in the database. Perhaps it's a staging environment. So then it's fine. Like at a certain date, you just drop all the data that's like, you know, six months old and you can just throw it out and not have to worry about it. 
I like the alerting idea that you mentioned. Ideally, I definitely want the alerting in place, but my hesitation to fully lean on that and trust it and to ship potentially something that's broken is if you are in like a healthcare world or something that's going to be very sensitive to where if you have errors that are like five or 10 minutes, like at what point do you know that someone that was at like a primary care facility, like couldn't take notes while they were having a meeting with one of their patients. And then that's where I feel like the alerting wouldn't quite be enough coverage So circling around through, I think, all the options that we've discussed, I think the fakes are probably the route that I would be interested in exploring, where having more robust testing that spins up a fake, either using Capybara. I liked what you said as well about potentially using Mirage, because in this case, there is a front-end application that's communicating to the back-end that for most part, the back-end is the gatekeeper to all the other services. So it really is the back-end that's doing all that communication. There are some exceptions to that. But I I think I really like the idea of making the the front end testing more robust and using services like those to spin up something that can mimic a production environment and then ensure things still work. I think you still run into the issue, though, if you have like a, a PR that's updating, like, say, one of the services like that could essentially if that were to somehow break its response to the back end server, that then even if you have a really nice, robust testing on the front end with the Ember application, you're not going to know about it. So then perhaps that's where the alerting comes into play. But yeah, it feels like one of those those tough areas where I don't I don't have a great answer for it, but I'm really enjoying thinking about the different ways that folks could approach this. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. One of the greatest challenges we all face is taking in all the information that's available and knowing where to focus. It's the same problem with hiring. With Indeed, you have access to the largest pool of talent and can hire the right people fast. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Bike Shed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash Bike Shed. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Thank you again to Indeed for sponsoring today's episode. Yeah, I think with that sort of change where you're like fundamentally updating an API or adding a new service or removing one, something that has a higher potential of breaking a bunch of stuff. In those cases, I think having a formal QA process and and really being purposeful about how you roll that change out totally makes sense. But I'm really interested in for the vast majority, the 80% of commits that are much simpler, that are much more straightforward. They're changing some text on a page. They're adding a new button. They're a depend bot bump of a minor version or a patch version of a dependency. I would hope that we can get to a place that our test suite can tell us yes or no on that and that we can trust that. I don't expect that for big changes. Like I'm still manually validating most of the stuff that I'm doing now because so much of it is I'm going in there and I'm fundamentally changing around the database structure. You know what? I'm going to poke at that a bunch before I go live with it. But there's a lot of stuff that's at the lower end where I'm just like, yeah, test suite told me it's good. I feel good about this one. and I'm just going to send it to production and I'll keep an eye on things. But yeah, there definitely is a spectrum there. And the fakes are... I've had really good experiences with fakes, but I think in those cases, it was more we started with a fake and we kept it going the whole time, as opposed to adding them after the fact is really hard. You definitely can build up a fake that you have confidence in, but then like, how do you keep it in sync? Um, This is actually to come back to my favorite topic. uh, GraphQL is a wonderful technology. And you were talking actually about how the API ends up being sort of a a central gateway to all of those backend services. And that architecture is something that I really love. And I see more in the GraphQL world, or I try to encourage it whenever I'm working on a GraphQL API is let's have that API be a choke point and we can hide whatever service nonsense we hide in the background. So that's hidden on the one side of the API. And then we can frankly have a proliferation of clients on the front end. We can have an iOS app, a mobile app, we can have a mobile web app, we can have all these different things, and they all just need to talk to the GraphQL API, and the GraphQL API needs to hide whatever's going on in the background. But now everybody 
we can hide that complexity of services in the back end from all the clients. And we can frankly hide the complexity of all the clients from the services. The worst possible thing I can imagine is we have 10 different clients and 15 different services, and they all know about each other. Because that, if you start drawing the arrows, I can't even draw that many arrows. My marker would immediately run out of ink. <laughs> I have faith in you. You could draw all the arrows. <laughs> it's not about me. It's about the marker. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I would get lost. I'd be like, no, wait, I already drew that line. No, wait, that doesn't go there. Those lines can't cross. But that, like, if you just draw that diagram, it very quickly highlights the complexity there. And so if you can have this choke point in the middle, and especially with GraphQL, if you can have it with a strongly typed schema, because the idea of having a fake, if you have a fake against an API that you don't really have a way to validate, how do you know if the fake's telling you the truth? Like it's, you've kind of moved the trust problem up the stack. But if you have GraphQL, at least you have the ability to say like, am I still in sync with the GraphQL schema? Because it's inherently a part of it. There's definitely ways with Swagger and other documentation tools for non-GraphQL APIs. But because it's built into GraphQL, it's just one more thing that I really like about it. The idea of having one primary API that the client's going to communicate with does make me feel better about having a fake. Because as you'd mentioned, like there's just one fake now that needs to be kept up to date and make sure that it does reflect what's actually in production versus if you're trying to create a fake for like four or five different services. I think it's just, it's very likely that one of those is going to get out of date and it's going to be hard to manage. So I do appreciate that idea. And this fake architecture that we're building, let's say if we have our client and then we have our API and then that API talks to three other services, then let's say that we have a PR that we are deploying and it's changing the server. Would you also consider having the API test suite use fakes for those services? And then we would continue like it's fakes all the way down. So it's fake for the client to the API. And then the API also uses fakes testing against those services. Would we continue that trend to then feel confident about deploying our change in, let's say, a world that we couldn't test it on staging or we're trying to not test it on staging? I think each boundary, each like interface is probably worth having some, there's a contract here and we want tests to ensure that that contract is not broken. But then knowing that you have that cost that you have to pay, let's have as few of those interfaces as possible. So the GraphQL API needs to be able to talk to and respond to clients, but it also needs to know how to consume from services behind it. And so that one's going to probably be the most complicated, but then each of the services, how simple can they be? How minimal can their public API be? And then we do want to make sure that that works, but ideally like sort of a directed graph towards the center. So the GraphQL API at the middle needs to know how do I respond to clients and how do I get information from services? But the services ideally can be like, I just do this. I don't even know who's talking to me. I don't care. You just <laughs> jazz hand service. It's the best service. But ideally, it's least aware of other things going on. It's just like, I'm a search service. You get to hit my endpoint with a text query, and I will return to you a number. That's it. That's our story. That's nothing else. I don't know who cares about the number. I don't know what you're going to do with that number. The way you describe services, they sound very sassy. Mm, I hope <laughs> you so. You get this one deal, and that is it. <laughs> How else do you defend that minimal public interface if you don't have a little bit of sass? <laughs> Well, so I think the answer to my question is yes, is that yet yeah, one, you do want the services to do as little as possible. But then in terms of the API that then is relying on, let's say there's three other services is to then build a fake that represents those three different services. And then ideally, I think you're just carrying the conversation further to say, ideally, those services would do very little. So then it's easy to continue to build a fake for those dependencies. Yeah, I think that's true. The thing that I struggle with is at each layer where you're introducing these fakes, how do you keep those up to date? And so I do wonder about like, even if you have a REST API for one of these services, can it expose something more explicit like Swagger documentation or something else that's in code structured documentation of how even just the interface, like you send me a string that looks like this, I send you back an array of numbers. And that alone, like, oh, no, we've changed it. It's now an object that has a key. And the key is the value is an array of numbers. We nested it one level deeper. That sort of change, how can you make sure you don't deploy that without breaking something is sort of the fundamental question. And I think, I think fakes for the middle thing is what makes sense. But if there's some way that you can, I don't know, maybe humans just have to talk to each other, though. At that point, yeah. like if you have a team making a service and somebody else depends on that service, you have to have some knowledge of that and communicate it and trying to do it all in code or all in an automated fashion is an uphill battle. 
Yeah, I think there's two options that are standing out to me is one, uh, the people have to talk to each other, or at least we do have to have some testing on staging, uh, I think is what that looks like, is when you do have a bigger change like that going out. And then two, the other option, I feel like this is a thing, but I don't know enough about it, is where you turn the fake off and then have some tests that do hit a real endpoint, and then verify that that still works and that the contract's still there, that you get the expected response. I want to say that I've, I've worked with a team that did that in the past, but my memory is foggy on those details. But that would be the other thing I'd be interested in is could you turn the fake off and then run it once and let's say if you ran those tests just like once a day and then you wanted to verify that, yes, the expectations that we have from this API are still true so we can still continue to work with our fake and everything is fine. I want to say that I've worked with a team that had a similar practice. And I think uh, what I'm remembering is working with VCR. Every so often, you could tell it to go hit the real endpoint to record the response from that endpoint and then update your test. And then you could verify that your tests are still correct against something that just happened in the real world. So you know that you are up to date with your expectations. And I know that you and I have talked about VCR, but it's been a while. So that's uh, perhaps an episode that we can link to as well. I have very strong feelings is what I remember about VCR. I remember on one hand, I really loved what it did. On the other hand, I felt like it was very easy to then create VCR tests that always ran for reals against that endpoint or that were just very hard to manage and update and extend. So I feel like on one hand, I really appreciated what the service did. But on the other hand, I felt like you could really like code yourself into a situation where then the test felt less useful and were much harder to update. I've only used VCR in passing, but my experiences were similar where it's like, this is great in theory. And in practice, it's, I don't know, I keep just hitting some edges. It feels actually very similar to the recent stuff I've done with uh, snapshot testing in RSpec. Like, how do you make sure you're not getting false positives, but you're also not getting false negatives? Ideally, if a test breaks, it's telling you a true thing that you have introduced a bug. You've broken the app in some way. It's like, oh, actually, we changed the formatting of timestamps. That's fine. We're going to use date parse on either side. It's not a problem. I guess I got to update all these tests, though. That's annoying. But that sort of thing, like the VCR being a contract of sorts, is interesting. And the re-recording on a semi-regular basis feels like a, a perhaps a nice optimization for how do we keep this up to date, but also how do we work in isolation and all those sort of things and not have to manually maintain a fake. Yeah, someone who hasn't worked in a heavy like microservice architecture environment, this feels like one of those trade offs that on one hand, you're striving hard to follow that SRP principle where you have a service, it does one thing, you can extract that from the code base, it can be shared, teams can work on it independently, it may be an application that doesn't have a quick iteration of its product lifecycle where maybe you only need to update it every once in a while. So it fits really well as a service. But then the flip side for the benefits that you've just gained, the flip side is that is now you do have some more complicated testing, also a bit more complicated setup when you're developing locally. And it may require just more manual testing on staging to then ensure that all your services work and behave together as expected. Software thing's hard. <laughs> I'm glad we meet and chat about it. This is really helpful. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Did you see the thing that's been making the rounds today where someone responded to a GitHub issue that was like, oh, uh, sorry, I didn't reply in a while. I don't do software anymore. I just make woodworking. No. <laughs> it's, uh, the hours are longer and the work is harder, but no one ever asked me to put like SMS into a database system. Or It was some very nonsensical answer, but was just like, wow. That's, and then the Internet of Developers did that thing that we do. We're like, oh, yeah, I also want to just quit and become a woodworker. <laughs> but it's very much a grass is always greener sort of situation, I think. I have seen those tweets where people will say, if you were to give up software development today, what would you do? Like, what's I know you already have your career picked out. So tell me what it is. And it's fun seeing the responses, how so many of them are photography, woodworking, being a farmer, hiking, <laughs> anything that's away from displays seems to be the predominant answer. I really just want to optimize a little bit more because the like practical seeing a thing that I made in front of me or something that like I did with my hands, that seems to be a consistent theme. But if you make it your job, then suddenly that's going to be terrible too. So how do you just hobby woodworking? That's the correct answer. You make sure you only work seven hours a day in front of a screen. Then you have a hobby woodworking shop or electronics or some other craft or you just mow your lawn. I find that to be delightful. I have a small lawn. That helps a lot. But because if it were a bigger lawn, then it'd be a job. Now it's just a hobby. I listen to a podcast and it's great. But it definitely has that. This is the opposite of what I'm doing most of the time. Yeah, it's that hard pivot where you've burned out and now you're going, you're swinging hard to the, 
For folks who can't see, Chris just did pivot, but quietly. I sure did. So gently pivoting us back to the conversation we were having just before woodworking, which sounds delightful, in regards to how to test like a suite of microservices and then feel confidence in deploying to recap some of the strategies that we discussed. Uh, one of them, we talked about creating fakes. So if you have a front end and back end, creating a fake that serves as that back end API, that would be one approach. And then also using fakes to then stub out those services that ideally have a very simple interface that we can stub out. There's also the idea, I'm going to include the, the wilder ideas as well. CI runs all the processes. So if there's a way to pull those services in and then be able to spin them up or create a production-like environment where you alluded to working with a DevOps team, but that was still a very hard challenge, but something that they were working towards. And then the other one is implementing more alerting. So that way we're noticing that if we do deploy something, but we feel mostly confident about it, but then we have thresholds or analytics that notify us pretty early on that we've deployed something that is then breaking that expectation with those services. And then there's the good old testing on staging, old fashioned manual testing. I think my favorites from those are implementing fakes, implementing more alerting, because alerting just always seems like a really nice thing to have as well. And then I think we'll always still have some bit of testing on staging just to truly have confidence that all our pieces are working together. Yep, that maps to those two of the five would definitely be the ones that I would reach for first. And I would only go to the others if there were some conflating factor that would push me more in those directions. But I think I would start at a minimum with those two because they, they do feel like investments. The alerting, like you said, that's always useful. Mirage JS, I was actually listening to a recent episode of the React podcast with Sam Selikoff talking about Mirage JS and how it can both serve as like a way to test, but it's also in your local dev environment, Mirage just spins up and it's there to go and it's got a bunch of seed data. And so if you purposefully work with it, it serves kind of multifaceted purposes and becomes this thing that you invest in and maintain over time, but you get lots of returns from it. So in both of those cases, I feel like you're not just trying to solve this one problem, but you would be investing in the infrastructure and how you get work done overall. Whereas some of the other, like just trying to pull all the services onto CI and test them together, that's just hard to do. And all it does is solve the problem of testing. So agreed. And then to pivot from my pivot, very important question. What is your career going to be after web development? Lawnmower racing. Lawnmower racing? I'm going to be a lawnmower racer. Have you been practicing? Yeah, I'm super slow because my lawnmower is the, the sort where you have to push it entirely. Like I'm entirely in charge of the motion of my lawnmower. It's not a ride along. It's not even one of those that like kind of pulls you along. It's all me. <laughs> I mostly sit at a computer all day. So that's, you know, it's fine. I don't really have any hills to work with. I don't think you are the lawnmower optimized for racing at this point, it sounds like. But it's a dream. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> this is I'm getting in my reps. These are my practice rounds so that I'm ready when I have my lightweight racing lawnmower. I love it. Vroom, vroom. On that note, shall we wrap up? <laughs> vroom, vroom. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating and a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Vroom, vroom. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.